Just a couple things to finish up from last week. When we talked about the operation of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Just want to summarize that. All of the Old Testament saints are regenerated. Every believer from Adam to Christ, if he's going to go to heaven, has to be regenerated. And the regeneration is of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who regenerates them. So the Holy Spirit has been active in bringing people to Christ or to faith in God all the way from Adam all the way to Christ. So in that sense, he has been operative. Secondly, the Holy Spirit was given to selected persons <clears throat> as, a, as a gift. The, the Holy Spirit did not given to every believer in the Old, the Old Testament. Uh, God gave the gift of the Spirit to the ones who prepared the tabernacle, who were the artists, who were the builder, so they could build that tabernacle just exactly as God laid it out to Moses. And if you've read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, uh, you can be thankful you're not under the law and all the stuff you had to go through. I don't know how you can remember all that, but I guess you were taught it from little up. We do know this, that Israel didn't remember it all. Uh, they veered away from the law fairly quickly. But anyway, the artisans of the tabernacle were given the gift of the Spirit. If you read the story of Joseph, he had a spirit. The Spirit was in him, and Pharaoh recognized that. And when Joseph interpreted his two dreams. He rose from the jailhouse to the penthouse in one day. He became uh, 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 from prison. He became the prime minister of the nation of Egypt. We also know the Holy Spirit was in the prophets and so forth and so on. And the Holy Spirit did not dwell permanently with certain men. Take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14 to 17. 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 to 17. One verse, a uh, couple verses in the Old Testament. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and the evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servant said to him, Behold, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall, pay the, he shall play the harp with his hands, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. So who was that man? David. Uh, God withdrew the spirit from Saul and sent an evil spirit to take his place because of his actions, because of his unbelief. So uh, Saul became an enemy of God, seeking to kill the one who was anointed by God, and then in the latter days sought an evil spirit. Uh, calling Samuel up from the dead. Remember that? The witch of Endor. Well, the witch of Endor called evil spirits in and she was shocked to death when one actually showed. And it happened to be Samuel. So in other words, the spirit came and went on individuals and in the case of Saul, the spirit came upon him to equip him to lead Israel as, their, as his king. And when the Spirit departed, then the Spirit came upon David. And remember when he committed sin with Bathsheba, adultery, and covered it up and killed her husband, had him killed in the battle. In Psalm 51, David prays, don't take the Spirit from me. That was a legitimate prayer because the Spirit was a gift that enabled David to lead the nation of Israel. It's not a legitimate prayer today. 
If you're a born-again believer and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, at the moment of salvation, you receive the sealing of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, and the baptism of the Spirit, all one shot. And whereas the filling comes and goes, all the others are permanent. So you can't. So you do not pray. Don't take your spirit from me. Now you may, you may pray, Lord. I let the spirit control me. I've uh, been walking in the flesh long enough, and I want the spirit to control me. But you never pray, Lord. Bring your spirit to me. And a lot of the hymns that have been written, obviously, have been. Uh, ha on the Holy Spirit, you want to check out pretty carefully, because a lot of them are uh, are uh, doctrinally incorrect. All right. Fourthly, the giving of the Holy Spirit is not always related to moral and spiritual characters. I can think of a few, can't you? For example, uh, Samson. Samson wasn't known for his uh, spiritual qualities. And uh, Spear came and when he needed it and uh, killed a lion. Killed how many thousand? A thousand people with the jawbone of an axe. A thousand soldiers. I often wonder, was he built like Shaq O'Neal? Or was he a skinny guy? And it was just the spirit that came upon him. Does anybody have any answers on that one? <laughs> I don't know, would you look at him and say, this guy is a super powerful machine, or is this guy just a skinny guy? I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? But nonetheless, when the Spirit of God came upon him, he was one powerful dude. And then Balaam. Balaam was a false prophet who prophesied was paid, hired to prophesy, prophesy against Israel. And when he opened his mouth, the Spirit came and gave wonderful praises to Israel. And Balak, who hired him, was really uh, ticked off and moved him around. And every time he opened his mouth, he blessed Israel and some of the greatest blessings. So the Spirit was upon him. So this is uh, the characteristic of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is much different than it is in our era. And that's what we'll begin talking about when we talk about the Holy Spirit and the church. The Holy Spirit created the church, by the way. Let's follow these passages and see how that sort of came to fruition. Beginning with Matthew 3, 11 to 12, Mark 1, 7 to 8, and Luke 3, 15 to 17. I've been on this subject for a while, so these will be very familiar verses to you. But we'll look at it in slightly a different way. Uh, Matthew 3, 11 to 12. As for me, I baptize with you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay. Uh, John is predicting one who's coming after him who is the Messiah. And whereas John is baptizing with water, when Jesus comes, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Holy Spirit has now been fulfilled, but the fire awaits the second coming of Jesus Christ through the earth. 2,000 years difference here. <clears throat> That's still coming because of the unbelief in the land and in the world. All right, Mark 1, 7 to 8. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of the sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that, what that means a little bit later. Luke 
chapter 3, 15 to 17. Or actually read verse 16 to 17. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will burn, he will burn, with unquenchable fire. Okay, the way they harvested was they would take cut the wheat, put it on a threshing floor on a uh, hard stone paved threshing floor, let the horses or animals run over it, and then they would blow out the chaff, gather up the wheat, and burn the burn what's left over. And so he will part the wheat from the straw and he will burn the straw. Basically what the Lord will do. First part, fulfilled. Second part, unfulfilled. But God always fulfills his word so that is is, is, is sure to happen as is the history. Look at John. Look at John chapter 7. And verse uh, 37 to 39, Jesus teaching about the Holy Spirit. Remember, we're still under Old Testament times until the day of Pentecost. Now on the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But he spoke of the Spirit, whom whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, the Spirit is not yet given. But he says, whoever believes in him, he says, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. So a person who puts their faith and trust in Christ is regenerated and becomes very active for the Lord and a lot lot of things happen and changes in their life. Salvation is best seen in one's life. It's a commitment to the Lord and God gives us a new nature, a new heart. And we have a desire to please the Lord. How about John 14, 16 to 17, when speaking to his disciples? John 14, 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. Interesting, isn't it? While Jesus was on earth, they had the presence of Jesus right with them all the time, everywhere. And Jesus is now leaving and going to leave and has been gone now for 2,000 years. He didn't set up his kingdom as he uh, told them he would. That has been postponed, delayed. But he said, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you, disciples, because he abides with you even during these days. But notice, he will be what? In you. In you. That's That's a new operation. And how long will he be in them? Forever. Forever. So, a million years from now, you're in heaven. Where's the spirit? Still in you. Where? In you. In you. Once he comes in you at the point of belief in Christ, he's in you for the rest of all eternity. You'll never be without a helper. Rod? Yes. We have a 
clear picture what the Holy Spirit does for us now, his role in our life. How, did, how would you describe that role in heaven? Because we now walk by sight, not by faith. We don't need the conviction of sin. So I'd say in heaven that uh, you'll never sin and he will be that part of it. He'll never desire sin. You'll be completely controlled and filled by the Spirit of God. He'll be uh, your new nature. Your new nature gives you that desire right now, but you can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your new nature is not strong enough to overcome the flesh, if it even if it wants to. Read Romans 7. Romans 7 says, What I want to do, what? I don't do. Even though I want to. When you were an unbeliever, you didn't want to do those things. But the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit enables you to do what you want to do if you rely on Him. And what I don't want to do, what do we find ourselves doing? That very thing. So, Rod, if the whole new nature takes care of that part, and what does what what does the Holy Spirit? How does it affect me? How will I? Uh, my my answer is you're completely controlled by the Spirit all the time in heaven. You're doing exactly what you want to do by the Spirit's power. Not by the new nature. No, the new nature is in agreement with it, but the Holy Spirit is actual, is the actual operative power. The new nature doesn't have any power within and of itself. Does that make sense to you? Uh, do you think part of that mm -hmm. work would be, um, as we know, <clears throat> in eternity we will spend it worshiping God and the Holy Spirit, right. both on earth and in heaven? Will plus this particular when you, this group gets to heaven, along with anybody in this particular age gets to heaven, from Pentecost to the rapture of the church, when we get to heaven, what are we going to do for the next thousand years? We're there. Rule and reign. Rule and reign with the Lord. Remember what he told his disciples? Uh, a rich man came to, uh, a young rich ruler came to Jesus. And he said, what must I do to be saved? What was Jesus' reply, do you remember? Keep the law. Keep the law. Now, do you find that interesting? <laughs> Shouldn't he have said, shouldn't the Lord have said in, in our minds, you should repent and believe in me? Why didn't he? No Holy Spirit. Because the law shows us what? You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You got, before you can be saved, you've got to realize you're a sinner. The law was given to show us a sinner. So he said, well, Jesus, I've kept all of them <laughs> from my youth. Yeah, right. <laughs> I've kept all the Ten Commandments from my youth. Okay, so you're perfect. Then sell all you have and give to the poor. Since you're perfect. What did the young man do? He walked away sorrowful. He wasn't willing to give up everything. He never realized he was a sinner. So, the disciples say to him, and this is all in Matthew 19, the disciples say to him, wow, if a rich man is hard for a rich man to be saved, who can be saved? What's Jesus' answer? With man it's impossible. Yeah, with man it's impossible. He says it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than a rich man to be saved. Now what's a needle's eye? How have you heard that explanation over the years? A little cupulo beside the ball. 
small enough so a camel couldn't get in, but he could squeeze himself in? Well, Luke knows the, and those disciples knew what a needle's eye was. It's a needle's eye. And the only way a camel can go through a needle's eye, you soak him in sulfuric acid and float him through. It's impossible. And that's the point Jesus makes. It's impossible, but with God, it is possible. The next question. Peter says, well, we've sold everything and given everything to you. What happens to us? What did Jesus say? If you're faithful here, you'll rule many things in heaven. And in the kingdom of God. So you will be rewarded, I will be rewarded on the basis of how faithful I am to him while I'm here, if you're a Christian. I've kiddingly said, and I probably shouldn't, but I'll do it again. Some, will, some Christians will probably be dog catchers. Some Christians will rule over cities. with the Lord's help and the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You're not going to sit in heaven on a bank of a little stream with your feet in the water and you're playing Amazing Grace on your little ukulele <laughs> or harp. You're going to be very busy in heaven. And you're going to have endless energy to serve the Lord, and He's got great things for you. I don't know if you've looked out in the heavens lately. Uh, there's a lot of ground to cover up there. <laughs> You'll be in a new heaven and a new earth. Pastor Ralph. Yes. I, I don't know if this has a lot to do with Jeff's question. I think it, I think it does. But in so in heaven. Paul describes this in chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians on um, the mystery um, mystery of the you know the, the the heavenly cannot inherit the perishable you know we must have an imperishable right and he describes it that the spirit uh, what is heavenly is spiritual what is earthly you know is perishable and so forth so there's a couple of Pretty key verses here. The natural man then, uh, in verse 46, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual, the first man is from the earth, earthy, the second man is from heaven. And then goes on, I'll skip ahead a little bit here, but verse 52, everyone's familiar with this, but in a moment, the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, that will be raised and perishable and changed. And the imperishable must put on, or the perishable must put on the imperishable. And so there's clearly a, you know, a spiritual, um, a, a spiritual change, which is being described, and I, I feel like that has something to do with the work of the Holy Spirit also in, in heaven in terms of. Sure, you can't go to heaven in the body you're in right now. Yeah. The body you and I are in right now is cursed. And all you have to do is take a look around you. And some of our prayer requests, even this morning, we're do, dealing with a body that's dying. And we're in a body that's dying, uh, period. And it's, uh, it's just a matter of time before it catches us all. And we, so this body is corruptible, as, uh, as, as Ryan read that, that verse. So that body has to be changed. And it's changed at the resurrection. You get a brand new glorified body just as Jesus has. 1 John chapter 4 and following. You get a brand new body just like Jesus has. Now that body is fit for eternal life. Uh, the disciples were in a closed room, locked door. Jesus came into that room without knocking, came into that room and was suddenly there. 
you say, well, you can't be physical. Well, what did, what did Thomas do? Touched him. Touched him. I don't, I don't believe this happened. Thomas wasn't there the first time. He said, I don't believe it was there. And until I touch him, I'm not going to believe it. First thing the Lord said the second time he visited him, Thomas, come here. Put your hands in the scars on my hands, my feet, and my side. He's physical. His physicality is not like the world's. It's a brand new body that could travel at thought. Then the disciples were fishing one day and they caught no fish, remember? And they see somebody on the shore cooking a meal. Okay? And who was that? And what did he tell them to do? Yeah, come and eat. And he ate with them. Now, big seminary question was, where did the food go? <laughs> but the point is, he had a physical body. That was the point. He had a physical body. And you and I will have a new physical body like Jesus Christ. Now, how old was Jesus when he died? 33, we say. So, we'll have a body like his. Children who die in infancy will be 33, to put it simply, 33 years old. And we who have skipped 33 a long time ago will be 33. It's no harder to get a 90-year-old person back to 33 than it is to get a six-month baby up to 33 or a miscarriage. If I believe that conception is where life begins, then I believe every miscarriage and every child born and dies before they have the opportunity to put their faith and trust in Christ, whenever that is, goes to heaven. There'll be far more people in heaven than in hell. Half the world dies in infancy. <clears throat> Isn't that great? Yeah. You will, you'll have a brand new body. That's your old. So, uh, that's why we don't have, we'll have no problem in eternity. <laughs> Because we have a body like Christ. Yeah, we have a body like Christ that wants to please Christ. And we have the divine energy of the Holy Spirit within us to enable us to do it. How about that? You'll have rivers of living water. Does that mean just down here? I don't think so. It's true here. as well. So the Holy Spirit will be within us forever. So when you die, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave. The Holy Spirit that gives you life is still alive. Physical death takes place. But it's a mystery, isn't it? How that all works. Having been around, my father died, and others who have passed away, having been there. Just amazing. One minute they're there, and one minute they're gone. All right. So there's a new mandate now. Look at Matthew 28, verses 17 to 20. Jesus is ready to ascend. His 11 disciples are before him. And here's what he tells them just before he goes to heaven. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, Jesus was walking with them on the, in the country of Israel for three and a half years. Was all authority given to him? Yes or no? No. No. Who did he rely on? The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit and the Father. Now that he has been risen from the dead, he's been given all authority. And Jesus said, I have all authority, and here's what I'm saying to you. I'm saying to you, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, how was it in the Old Testament when you wanted to be saved? What did you have to do? I'm an Israelite. Yeah, you had to go to you had to become a proselyte Jew in a sense and go to the temple in Jerusalem three times a year as a believer. That was required of every man. Some some churches have never caught on. I drive by a church and they say, everybody's welcome to come here. That's true in a sense. But you don't come to church to get saved technically. You go in the world. The church goes into the world. That's our duty. Yes? Did you, did you also have to get circumcised? Yes. To get saved in the Old Testament no matter what yes. your age was? I wasn't going to bring that up. <laughs> That was a cost, people. <laughs> Not to make fun of it, but it was a cost. And that was a big issue in the church when the church started, remember? Book of Galatians. You can't become a Christian unless you're circumcised. I'm glad they settled that issue. Personally. And proselyte. Jews then in the Old Testament, they were allowed only as far as the outer court. Still yeah, they couldn't go in, even as a uh, Gentile proselyte. There was a wall there that said you could not enter. No Gentiles or, or no Jew or whatever it was on this wall. I, I forget the exact saying, but it was written on that wall. The court of the Gentiles, that's where they were allowed to go. So they could see it, but they couldn't get in and participate. So now, Jesus says he's changed the whole thing. You go into the world now and preach the gospel to every creature, making disciples of all the nations. We're not to gather in our holy huddle and praise one another. We gather in church to be encouraged and strengthened by everyone and seeing people here strengthens you. They're in church every Sunday, man alive. They're an encouragement to me. Or you hear their testimony, how they talk to their employer or employees, their neighbors, their relatives, and you say, man, I should be doing that. And so we encourage one another that we're sitting here and we're a mission, the area around us is a mission field. We're to go into all the world. We're not to limit ourselves to York, Hamilton, Fillmore County, or Polk County, or Mar Marriott. What is that county up there? Mar 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 whatever it is. Uh, we're not to limit ourselves to that area, but we're to preach the gospel to them. Yes. I think we're, we're also not supposed to limit ourselves to the gospel. It's teaching them to deserve all that I have commanded you. Um, yeah. That's discipleship and how the Bible relates to every aspect of our life. Sure, and what we're to teach them is everything Jesus taught us in the Word. Actually, that's the command. But it really, it reads this way, as you are going, you're to teach, you're to bring disciples of Christ. So it says, go therefore and make 
disciples, bring them to Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The baptism is the commitment on the part of those who by faith have put their faith and trust in Christ. The New Testament does not know of anybody who's a believer who wasn't baptized as a believer. Doesn't know. Just assumes they all were. Furthermore, it says, we are to teach them all things whatsoever uh, I have commanded you, Christ to command you do, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, take a look at Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 7. <clears throat> Acts 1, 4 to 7. Gathered them together, he commanded them not to leave to Jerusalem, but, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with holy water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Okay, are you establishing the kingdom now? And what did he say to them? No. You don't need to know the times and seasons that I'm restoring to you. I just want you to stay here till the Holy Spirit comes, till you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So when was that? Day of Pentecost. So the kingdom has been postponed. We're not in the kingdom. We're not making a kingdom. We're not creating a kingdom. Our main goal is twofold. To evangelize and edify. To tell the gospel and build them up in the faith. That's our goal of the church. And let me tell you something. The church has got off track on that in many, many areas. That's our purpose. That's the purpose of Countryside Bible Church. We are to tell people of the gospel. When they come to know Christ, then we have an obligation to teach them all the things that Christ taught us through the Word of God. And uh, when you read in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. Why? Because you're spiritually, spiritually discerned. And then in that same section it says, we have the mind of Christ. The world doesn't have that. We see the world different than the world sees itself. Don't we? We have the mind of God. We have the mind of Christ. It's all contained here from Genesis to Revelation. The more you read the book, the more you believe the book, literally, the more you have understanding of what's going on in the world today. And the more you see the necessity of people who need to be born again, and the necessity of them to be taught the whole counsel of God. That, look at Acts chapter 20. That's exactly what Paul told the Ephesian elders. He said, I, de I, did, I did not, I declared to you the whole counsel of God. To me, that's Genesis to Revelation. That's what we're supposed to do. Okay, look at Acts 1.8 now. Acts 1.8, right after this section. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes <coughs> upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Wow. 
Just like he told him in the Great Commission, wasn't it? You'll receive power to do what? To go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. You could take the book of Acts. You can see this played out. Acts chapter 2. They went, it was only Jews from all over the world. Then in Acts chapter 8, it's in Samaria. Acts chapter uh, 10, it's the Gentiles. And that was a big deal. And uh, Peter, remember he was in Joppa? Ironically, he was staying at a tanner's house. And the Old Testament, if you stayed where a dead animal, you had to be clean, right? So in essence, Peter's already on the edge if he's going by the law. And a Gentile by the name of Cornelius, a centurion, a man over a hundred people in the Roman army, came and said, we, we want to talk to you. The Lord had spoken to him. Peter goes up there, but before he goes, a sheet comes down from heaven full of all kinds of animals. Crows, lizards, pheasants, alligators, coyotes, weasels, rats. And this voice says, Peter, eat. Eat a minute, Lord. I've only, I only eat kosher food. The voice says, what I command to eat, you eat. And it came down again. And it came down how many times? Three. And then the people from Cornelius' house goes, and he goes to Cornelius' house, and there's a many Pentecostal experience that takes place at Cornelius' home. When Peter goes from Joppa back to Jerusalem, he's got some explaining to do. Why was he with these Gentiles? And he explains what happens there, and that's what we'll see. Okay. Rod? Yes. Uh, this is one area where I think the charismatic movement has really gone kind of over the board. And that is, they're using these as, okay, you can get the Spirit at a later date. Because after all, they waited. They waited, and, uh, and it came to them in different areas. Right. And different, you know, came to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to Cornelius' house. So they're using it, okay, it could come to you. And that's not true in a transition book like this. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah, and you got to be careful when people explain this to you in that Right. Manner. You have to interpret uh, Acts in a, as a historical transition from law to grace. And uh, the rest of the epistles, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and uh, the rest of the, the book, including Hebrews, very good book, explains that this is now fait complete. But there was quite a transition from Israel to the church, and they are separate, by the way. We are not the new Israel. And uh, we are not Israelites, we are the Ecclesia, we are the called out ones, which is translated church in the New Testament. All right. The Jewish Feast of Pentecost, Acts 2, 1 to 4. Someone want to read that, please. When the day of Pentecost came and they were all together in one place, suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
Okay, a couple things here. It was on the day of Pentecost, celebration of harvest, that this happened. It came with a, uh, from heaven with a noise like a violent <coughs> rushing wind. You live in Nebraska, you, you hear that occasionally in thunderstorms. Suddenly you're in a windstorm. And furthermore, the whole, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they were all filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, tongues here in this passage is a foreign language which people could hear in their own tongue from people who had no knowledge of that language. In other words, if you were from Africa there and you spoke Hoogabooga, then somebody in that group would speak Hoogabooga and you would know, hey, this is this is unusual. How do these people speak? And they recognize their own dialect. Because on the day of Pentecost, people, Jews who were scattered all over the Mediterranean area and other places came back. A lot of them came back to celebrate the feast. What's going on today, quite frankly, in tongues, and we'll talk about it, when we get to the gifts of the Spirit, but what's going on right now is gibberish. I mean, uh, I'm not a, uh, I don't go to many Pentecostal meetings, to be honest with you, but uh, I do have a television set, and I've watched a few uh, Pentecostal things, and I've seen people just rattle off and bop, 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 bop. And they can uh, also, they teach you how to speak in tongues. If it's really of the Holy Spirit, it's like the day of Pentecost, why do you need a teacher? Well, even at the end of chapter 2, they were accused, the people around them thought they were filled with sweet wine. Yeah. Paul clears that up in 1 Corinthians later on, too. Mm -hmm. If you're going to speak in tongues today, then go to 1 Corinthians 14 and follow the mandate. Number one, no more than three. And, and there must be an interpreter. If there's no interpreter, let him keep quiet in the church. And only men. Only men. That ends the movie. <laughs> Isn't it true that tongues with an S is a known language? That's what I'm saying. It's not some silly. So. No. That's my point. My point is that tongues is a known language. And it was given supernaturally, as were the miracles in Jesus' day, to get the people's attention is something really unique is going on here. And Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 14 is that if everybody speaks in tongues in a foreign language, what are you going to get out of it? Have you been in a service where they've spoken in a foreign language? I have. I recognize the songs they were singing because they were to our tunes. But when I heard the message, I had a hard time staying with it because I didn't understand a word. Every once in a while, I'd hear the word Jesus, and I knew who that was, and I knew this, that, and the other thing, but I didn't get anything out of the service. I, I, the thing I got out of the service was, here's some people in a foreign language who love the same Lord I do, and they're serving the Lord with all their heart, soul, and mind. And that fellowship was great. But I didn't get anything out of the sermon, per se. 
And furthermore, Paul says, how do you know if you don't if you if you don't understand? How do you know to say amen? Amen. There'd be no problem here. They don't say amen anyway. But <laughs> how would you say amen to what's being said? Like the guy that went to a church and he was in a church and the preacher would say something and he'd say, Amen. Say something else and he'd say, Amen. Finally, the guy in front of him in the pew in front of him and turned around and gave him a scowl look. But he kept saying, Amen. And he said, We don't say Amen in this church. Rod, would that be like the Catholics when they had it in Latin? Yeah, I would say so. Because they wouldn't understand it. They didn't understand it. <coughs> My dad grew up in a German church and he didn't understand that. <coughs> Once in a while they'd have a German Sunday when I was a kid and I didn't understand it either. Hey, Paul, I, I just can't leave it alone, sorry. He, one of my favorite statements in that whole chapter, he says, however, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind. In other words, I'm thinking about what I'm saying so that I may instruct also others rather than 10,000 words. Now put the formula together. Exactly. How much is 5,000 over 10,000? Right. That's a Paul saying. Mm -hmm. Not putting a very high value on it. And, and remember this too, that in Paul's day, tongues was still a valid uh, still a valid means that God used. Uh, but uh, I wrote my dissertation on 1 Corinthians 13a. Tongues shall cease. And if you look at that verse, it includes knowledge and prophecy. And there's two, there's two Greek words used with knowledge and prophecy and that means something else will replace it. But there's a Greek word with tongues, which is equivalent to P-A-U-O. And that is the same word when Jesus stood up and said in the boat, peace be still. In other words, stop. And the wave stopped and the wind stopped. And nothing stirred it back up. And you have almost 1,500 years of prophecy, or no, I should say prophecy, but you've had almost 1,500 years of church history where no tongues were spoken. And the big revival of tongue speaking came in the 1960s at Azusa Pacific. And there was a great revival of tongue speaking that spread throughout the world. And uh, a lot of the missionaries uh, in uh, Brazil and South America, tongue-speaking is in the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, the Mormon Church. Uh, it's not just limited to Christian churches. So it's a big problem in uh, South America. And that's the final bell. Thank <laughs> you.